As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day. and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. 200,000 Americans, 200,000, Alan, needlessly died because they refused the COVID vaccine. Most of those deaths were innocent victims. They went down that rabbit hole, you know, watching Fox News or listening to the CPAC conference of conservatives in July of 2021. First, they're going to vaccinate you, and then they're going to take away your guns and your Bibles. And as ridiculous as that sounds to us, people in my state of Texas accepted that. It's almost unbelievable. That's Dr. Peter Hotez. In his white coat and bow tie, he became a familiar face on TV during the COVID pandemic, laying out the scientific case for the safety and efficacy of COVID vaccines. He also became the target of anti-vaxxers, putting him at physical risk. In his new book, The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning, he spells out how anti-science has become a major societal force and a lethal one. This is great to be talking with you about this because we're talking about something that's so important, this rise of anti-science that came to the forefront in a very vivid way during the pandemic. You describe it in, in graphic terms. You call it aggression. That's not too strong a term, is it? Yeah, and by the way, this was not a fun book to write, The, the Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, because it talks about a very dark chapter in, in American history. I mean... You know, when I got my MD and PhD in New York a long, long time ago, being a scientist or developing vaccines was seen as something almost heroic, you know, science for the benefit of humanity and 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 the extraordinary impact of, of vaccines and vaccinations. I mean, the hookworm vaccine, human hookworm vaccine that I started as an MD, PhD student in New York in the 1980s is now in phase two clinical trials. We made two COVID vaccines for India and Indonesia that reached 100 million people at 2 to $3 a dose. And, and that was always part of the plan. But, you know, back then I never imagined that I'd have to defend vaccines or, or that people who make vaccines would be seen as pariahs. And, and so the book really talks about my decades going up against anti-vaccine groups. And the way it started was uh, I have four adult kids, including Rachel, who has autism and intellectual disabilities. And, and if you remember about 20 plus years ago, the original assertion from anti-vaccine groups was false claims that vaccines cause autism. So uh, I had written a book called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism about my daughter. And, and, and that was an important book, but it also wound up making me public enemy number one or two with anti-vaccine groups. But it gave me a front row seat to see what this movement is is about. And 
And as you point out, during this time of COVID, it really came off the rails. And, and you know, I have to talk about the fact that 200,000 Americans, 200,000, Alan, needlessly died because they refused the COVID vaccine during the, our Delta and BA1 wave. It's, it's, almost, it's, it's almost unbelievable. How did you come up with the estimate of 200,000? It has to do with the fact that if you remember the vaccines, the COVID vaccines, the mRNA vaccines came out the, at the beginning of 2021, end of 2020, beginning of 2021. And by the spring of 2021, the Biden administration had made it so that anyone who wanted to get a COVID vaccine could get a COVID vaccine. They were freely and widely available. And in countries such as Canada or Western Europe, pretty much after their vaccines became widely available, the deaths mostly halted. In, in the U.S., particularly in my state of Texas and other you know, red states, the deaths kept on going. And they kept on going because so many refused a vaccine. And those are the numbers, um, 200,000. Arguably, it's actually a conservative estimate. And... They weren't randomly distributed, Alan. They were, and and this is the hardest part to talk about because you know, as as, as you know, I mean, you you've been such a champion of science and health communication, and and one of the things that I've learned from you is, you know, we we don't want to be political about this, right? We we want to be politically neutral, and but what do you do when almost all of those deaths are in red states, red being Republican, blue being Democrat, and the redder the county, the lower the immunization rate and higher the death rate. And it's not that I care about your political views, even your extreme views, that's your right as an American, but how do we uncouple the anti-science from it? Because that's what's killing so many Americans, and it's, it's a very tough needle to thread. But most of those deaths were innocent victims. They were individuals who went down that rabbit hole, you know, watching Fox News, and I document Fox News' role, or listening to the CPAC conference of conservatives in July of 2021. First, they're going to vaccinate you, and then they're going to take away your guns and your Bibles. And as ridiculous as that sounds to us, people in my state of Texas accepted that. And and the role of certain members of the extreme right of the House Freedom Caucus and, and certain senators so the point is, it wasn't just random junk on the internet. It was targeted, and it was deliberate, and people lost their lives because they accepted it. And, and I dedicate the book to those individuals as, as victims of this. The people who lost their lives as a result of what, was, what, what must have been deliberate misinformation, disinformation, those victims really deserve our empathy. There are heartbreaking stories of people realizing on their deathbed that they're actually dying because they didn't get a vaccination. That's right. Can you imagine anything more heartbreaking than that? How did it begin, the current wave against vaccination? It sounds like it might have been innocent enough with one doctor presenting what he thought was evidence against vaccines. Is that right? A doctor in England? That's more or less... How, how I see it as well. There was a paper that turned out to be false. It was published in, in The Lancet, a very important biomedical journal in 1998 from a, a group of gastroenterologists in London who claimed that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, the MMR vaccine, which is a live virus vaccine, can replicate in the gut. And somehow that led to, at the time, was called pervasive developmental disorder. And the paper turned out to be wrong. It was 12 individuals. It was a small study. Um, it had a lot of 
conflicts of interest and everything that went with it. And the Lancet, the editors of the Lancet eventually retracted the paper. But by then, um, what you started to see is these groups were monetizing the internet. They were selling phony autism cures or nutritional supplements. Or if you go to amazon.com and type in books on vaccinations, almost all anti-vaccine conspiracy books. So it was, it became kind of linked to the health and wellness industry in some in some circles, or at least the 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 wrong end of the the health and wellness industry, and they were making money so much so that the Center for Countering Digital Hate. I mean, it's amazing we have to have something called the Center for Countering Digital Hate, right? <laughs> you know, finds that there was about a, a dozen uh, individuals and groups that were um, uh, responsible for about sixty five percent of the disinformation, and, mm. and that's where we we were before the pandemic, and then what you saw during the pandemic was this kind of it, it kind of all got started to get adopted by a political party and that started in 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 Texas and i think part of it was you know individuals like myself and colleagues were doing a good job debunking the phony autism link and they needed a new thing and i and the new thing was they started invoking uh, propaganda terms like health freedom, medical freedom, you can't tell us what to do about our kids. And and in Texas, it got support from the Republican Tea Party. You started to see PAC money go to anti-vaccine groups, political action committee money. It made no sense, right? But that's what happened. It sounds like the sense it made was that, as proven on the internet, you could get eyeballs with these false stories. You could not only get eyeballs, you could get cash. And politics runs on cash. So if it gathered momentum among their supporters, then maybe that was good enough. Yeah, yeah. Do you think the people who were anti-vaccine were able to take advantage of some things that were said by people who were communicating on behalf of vaccines in the beginning that could have been done a little better? For instance, the, the idea that this is what we know now. We may know more later. We may have to change our, our recommendation. That was said, but it wasn't said that much. That's right. That's you're, you. You've hit it perfectly. So, in terms of communications, here are some of the things that happened. I think when Operation Warp Speed started, um, one of the mistakes was giving the pharma companies free reign on communication. There were no restrictions. So, you know, Moderna, Pfizer would send out their press releases, and and you know, when the, they send out their press releases, they're not meant for you or for me. They're meant for their shareholders, right? And and what they did was they tended to spectacularize their accomplishment. They wanted to make it seem like the mRNA vaccines were miracles that came out of nowhere, and and it wasn't true. I mean, the we had been working on coronavirus vaccines for twelve years, shown that the spike protein was a target. How to deliver the spike protein? Um, other groups that just got the Nobel Prize from the University of Pennsylvania had been working on the mRNA technology for fifteen years, and that's about the right time frame for all vaccines. But you know, by by spectacularizing their accomplishments, yeah, sure, it jacked up their stock prices, but. But it was tone deaf to the effect on the American people because they'd say, well, gee, how could these, these things be legit if they just popped up out of nowhere? And, and they didn't. But, but I think that was a big problem. I think another issue in communication was um, this idea that, you know, if you remember when the vaccines were first rolled out, you had um, there were two doses, either three or four weeks apart, depending on if it was Pfizer or Moderna. 
what they didn't say was we're probably going to need a booster. I mean, I, I said that. I said, look, when you look at most childhood immunizations, you know, what do we do? We give a series of primary immunizations. You wait six months to a year and then you boost. And, and sometimes that gives you much longer lasting protection. So I said, it's not going to be one and done and two and done. We'll see. Maybe it'll be three and done. And, and by that Delta wave, I was looking pretty good because I was one of the few that said that. I think the disappointment was the mRNA technology itself did not hold up as well as we thought, and protection was not enduring, and and so we needed more frequent boosters. But that could have clearly been better messaged um, uh, as as well. So there were no question mistakes in science and health communication. But again, you had these groups that were just weaponizing it every, every turn and, and causing a lot of damage. I think maybe the vaccination against that, against lapses in good communication, is to think about what Richard Feynman said, the great American physicist. He used to say, don't overpromise. And when he explained physics, he didn't tell you everything all at once. He let you know there was more to come, but he'd let you know about that later. Right, yeah. Yeah. I think the recommendation that it wasn't necessary to wear masks at first, and then the recommendation that it was, and that it had to be enforced all over the place, was met with a disagreeable reaction because people hadn't been warned that more information might come in. And when it did, that changed the whole picture. That's right. That's right. And then the other aspect of that was, you know, when when the vaccines were first rolled out um, at, the, at the end of 2020... They were rolled out on the basis that these vaccines were halting symptomatic illness, and that's how they were tested. And and we didn't know if they pre actually prevented infection. But then it was the Israelis that came out with strong evidence showing that against the alpha wave, the vaccines were not only protecting against symptomatic illness, but actual infection and transmission, because the antibody was getting into the nose and mouth and and halting virus shedding. And that was the reason why the masks could come off after you were vaccinated, according to CDC. But they didn't. They needed to explain that better. And then what happened during the Delta wave when the virus began to mutate, you lost some of that protection against infection, even though it still prevented symptomatic illness. And that's why the masks had to come back on. But again, by not giving those underlying assumptions, um, it just confused people. And I think, the, for me, the message is... When you do science communications, don't dumb it down. Um, you know, yeah. But just find, try to avoid using a lot of jargon, and just talk to people like you would talk to your spouse or your kids to really want to make them understand. And I think that that was more effective. We've been talking a lot about anti-vaccination, but I, I think you're seeing a rise in anti-science in general. What's an example of that? How did it get to that point? Well, now what you're seeing, what's really troubling is, okay, now the book's out, and I've basically said 200,000 Americans needlessly perished because they refused COVID vaccinations. But you're now seeing from those same groups that, that pushed this, that pushed that agenda for political expediency, rather than having pause for self-reflection, they're doubling down. And what you're seeing is even equally troubling, which is that they want to blame, they want to say, no, it was the COVID vaccines that killed Americans. It's ridiculous, right? They were 
They were 90% protective. Three, they saved 3 million American lives. Or they'll want to say that the sci, it was the scientists who made the virus in the first place, which is equally ridiculous. So they basically are trying to um, you know, a, a accelerate the disinformation by saying it was the scientists. And it's playing out in a horrible way, Alan, right now in, in that GOP House hearings, the House COVID pandemic subcommittee. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, but on their official Twitter site, they they actually say they're going to sell popcorn. <laughs> I mean, they're not they're not meaning it's an entertainment. Me, me, meaning it's political theater or it's for Fox News sound bites, and they're parading hmm. prominent American scientists in front of C-SPAN cameras to try to humiliate them, and and uh, and that's horrible. I mean, again, this is a nation built on the strength of our research universities and institutions, and there's this need to kind of tear down the intelligentsia or tear down the, the, the science and the scientists. And, and in the book, I you know, say, okay, is there a historical precedent for that? And, and, and to understand that, I had to start talking to political scientists like Ruth Ben-Gad at, at NYU, you know, who's a professor of history and political science. She writes the book Strong Men or reading the writings of Anne Applebaum or even Hannah Arendt, The Origins of Totalitarianism. This is the authoritarian playbook. You go after the intelligentsia. You 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 disparage them, and you and you you make them public enemies. So this is very much, you know, in my view, the the authoritarian playbook. And this is this is what they do. And and again, it's so destabilizing for our country. You know that, and it's destabilizing for our national security interests. I think as well. In response to that, scientists have to deal with the fact that they're trained to do their work, to find the evidence, present the evidence, and let the evidence speak for itself, not to get someone's approval for their work on the basis of good rhetoric. That's right. It's the evidence. So they don't want to do a selling job to the public. Th that's right. And that's one of the reasons, you know, I got there were all these calls from Elon Musk and Joe Rogan and uh, these other individuals for me to debate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And, and I said, no. I mean, first of all, I'd spoken to him in the past, and he was very dug in, and, and, and I don't think it would be very productive. But the other reason I didn't do it is because that's not how we do science, right? What, you know, we, we have a way of doing science that's been working for the last 100-plus years, which is that we, you know, we publish our findings in peer-reviewed journals, the findings... There's calls for major revisions of those scientific papers, or sometimes they get rejected, or and then you send in the revisions and and you go back and forth a couple of days. It could take a year to get a scientific paper published, or you, or the same with a grant application, or you present your findings in front of a critical audience at scientific conferences to get feedback from your colleagues. Some of it not always very pleasant, but but that system works. I can't think of any example really where science was advanced through a public debate right it's not it's not 18th mm. century enlightenment philosophy right i understand you could debate rousseau and and and, and <laughs> kant and and bishop barclay but you know science i can't think of any example where science was advanced through debate i mean it's, it would send the wrong message i think that science to young people especially that science is won by who's a more clever debater and and I, I didn't want to send that message. But at the same time, you do need to exp explain science to the public. And, and that's why, you know, the kinds of cent the center you created at, at Stony Brook and 
and, and similar efforts like that are so important because, you know, not every scientist wants to do this, right? I mean, to do public engagement. I mean, mm. you know, most of my colleagues, you know, and that's fine. They want to keep their head down and focus on their experiments and papers, and, and that's fine. But for those who want to do it, we need, I think, those kinds of options because, you know, I had to learn how to communicate through trial and error, and as I like to say, more error than trial. Um, and and But there are ways that your communication skills can be improved. And and I would like to see those more of those offerings, like what you've created at Stony Brook for, for doctoral-level scientists, PhD-level scientists, medical students, for residents, for postdocs, because those who want to communicate, and there are a lot of young people that do want to do this. Their commitment to public service is at an all-time high, and we should encourage that. But they need those skills and that training to, to do it. When we come back from our break, Peter Hotez talks about the threats, even the death threats he's received because of the scientific views he's expressed about vaccines. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other in all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you, either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm... <laughs> I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Dr. Peter Hotez. We've been talking about how all through the COVID pandemic, he took a leading and very public role in countering the rhetoric of the anti-vaxxers. You've really offered answers to some of the questions they've raised, and you've done it in important and, and personal ways like the book you wrote about your daughter, where you actually traced the source of her autism to a gene. It wasn't vaccination at all. And that had no impact at all? Well, I think it did. I mean, I think it did take some of the wind out of the sails of the false claims that vaccines were doing it. And there were two parts to that. One first part was, first of all, um, showing the evidence that there is no link to vaccines, that you know, and the National Institutes of Health and 
and the European agencies funded big studies showing that kids who got the MMR vaccine were no more likely to acquire autism than kids who didn't. And similarly, kids who got vaccines with thimerosal were no more likely to acquire autism. But then you needed the second part to that. And the second part was, um, uh, it wasn't enough for parents just, just to say, don't blame the vaccines, because they still wanted to know what, what okay, if it's mm-hmm. not the vaccines, what is it? And and now, you know, we've got 100 autism genes that have been identified, and many of them are involved in interneuron connections. They're these so-called neuronal cytoskeleton genes involved in how neurons interact with each other, and including Rachel's uh, gene. And, and there's a fabulous study that came out a few weeks ago in out of Stanford showing that they have these brain organoids, you know, these they bring neurons together with other cell types that create like little microscopic mini brains. And they can watch how the neurons interact with each other with those mutated autism genes and show that they're not behaving the same way. And, And that's a really compelling story if you can get the time to explain that to parents. And, and because that's important too, you need to go into the, the science of, of autism, which is one of the things that I try to do in the book. But but you see, it's not a 30-second soundbite, so it, it does does take time, and that's, you need you need that time, and it's, um, and meanwhile, you know, the anti-vaccine groups are so shrill, and, and, you know, everything's in capital letters with a gazillion exclamation points. All caps, all the time. All caps, all the time, right. And so how you um, get that voice heard is really important, I think. So how do we fight back and get science its proper place again and save more lives? What's occurred to you? It's multifaceted. I think number one is not in any particular order, but one thing is to offer opportunities for science, scientists to communicate. I found people like hearing from scientists and, and people don't know what we do on a daily basis. They don't understand the struggles we go to it, lab meetings where we're disagreeing over something or what it means to get a paper published or what it means to get a grant and to get more grants turned down than accepted. We don't, they don't know what we do on a daily basis. If, you know, Research America, and I know you, you know them, they're, they're based in DC. They did this study that 90% of Americans cannot name a living scientist. 90%? We're, we're invisible. And of those who name a scientist, first of all, a significant number of Americans, when I say living scientists, still name Einstein or um, uh, <laughs> then, you know, the, the, when they finally get to name a living scientist, who is it? They name Neil deGrasse Tyson, they name Bill Nye, you know, who are great individuals, I have no issue, but, you know, they're not really working scientists, right, like we think of, you know. So, so people don't know what we do. So we have to... And, and and I think that was important. You know, when I was on the cable news channels, I was one of the few scientists that actually had been working in the lab with coronaviruses and, and making a vaccine. And people found it interesting, I think. And people, and it was important that people saw the scientist had emotion. I mean, you know, a couple of times I was talking about things that were so damn sad, right, during that Delta wave when people were dying of COVID and and droves that, you know, I teared up and even, you know, started to cry a bit going on talk, going on CNN. And, and at first I was mortified and I said, oh my God, they're never going to invite me back. But people actually appreciated it, that people cared about, that I cared about this stuff. And, and 
and I think the authenticity resonated with with people. So I think one is getting scientists more out there in, in, in the public domain. I think the other is we have to find champions that are willing to stand up to the phony baloney stuff, especially on, in the Republican Party, you know, because, you know, I have, there's a lot of really good uh, people from the conservative right who are horrified at what's happening, you know, with these attacks on science and scientists. They get it, but they'll say it to me in private and they won't, they won't, you know, back it up in, in public. And, and, and we need that. We need our Republican champions to say, you know, this is, this is nonsense. It's got to stop. And, and, and explain to the American people that we are a nation built on research universities and institutions and, and value that. And, and we have to kind of bring that back, you know, as, as front and center, I think. When we talk about doctors speaking out, I think, unfortunately, about the threats that have been leveled against you, I think almost daily, very scary threats. Does that kind of thing hold some doctors back from coming forward, do you think? It sure does. I mean, you know, people see how I get beat up and, and they say, well, who needs it? You know, and, uh, and it's, you know, now I've kind of incorporated into my professional life. I feel that being a vaccine scientist, you know, developing vaccines is now the first part, but also countering the anti-vaccine uh, attacks or, or activism is important too, because I can make all the vaccines in the world, but no one's going to take them if, if, if the activists rule of the day. But, but I do pay a pretty heavy price for that. I mean, you know, I get the email threats that says the, the army of patriots is coming to hunt me down. And, you know, at first I say, well, you don't need an army of patriots, it's just me and Anne and Rachel and the cat now. You know, what? one patriot, two patriots is probably more than sufficient. Don't bother with the whole army. You got to laugh, you, right? You come up with more of a sense of humor than I think I would. Oh, my God. And 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 so it's the emails, it's the online attacks, Um uh, the latest one now is there's all this stuff circulating that says I'm worth $35 million and I have 10 houses. And I, I say, who knew? <laughs> because you're supposed to be getting money from, from Big Pharma, right? That, that's right. Well, well, there's one group that says I'm getting it from Big Pharma. The other says I'm getting it from the Chinese Communist uh, Party. I mean, oh, it's just, my God. You know, it's just ridiculous, right? But, uh, and, but there's, so there's a lot, it's a big smear campaign that goes on. And then yeah. it's the in-person stalkings that, that I do where, I mean, I've had a person come to my, two people come to my house um, so they know where I live. Um, I'm regularly stalked now if I, if I speak, you know, give a lecture at another university or a conference, I'm often stalked. So we, now we have to let security know and, and you know, the local police department. Um, I've got my, you know, a, an FBI agent that's appended to my case when they send swastikas to my home. I mean, it's it's a very, it, you know, during the day when I'm talking to amazing people like you, I'm good. I feel great. I'm exhilarated. It's it at night. It does mess with you know. I wake up in the middle of the night. It does mess with your head. But uh, but uh, most of the time, it's it's good to know I'm in the mix and doing good things. Well, especially with regard to what it's costing you personally. Thank you for what you're doing. You've, you've saved lives, and you're continuing to save the lives even of people who don't think so. 
you know, it's really interesting. When I people come up to me, because, you know, they recognize me from TV or something, um, if they come up to me and say, Dr. Hotez, I know I'm good because they'll, you know, they basically say, well, thank you for keeping us safe during the pandemic. Thank you for all your work to make vaccines for the world. But if they come up to me and they say, hey, Peter, well, they don't, it means they don't want to acknowledge that I'm a doctor. I know, uh-oh, I better look for the exit door in a hurry. And, uh, uh, fortunately, most of them are doctors. Yeah. And every now and then they get the hey, Peter, you know. I just want to say, Dr. Hotez, and I'm very grateful for this conversation. Me, me too. You're, you're amazing. And I, I, you know, so I'm deeply grateful for all you've done, you know, for science communication and for health communication. And, and it's, it's so critically important. We, Alan, we need a, we need a hundred more of you is the problem. That's, that's. <laughs> my wife can only deal with one. <laughs> so my wife would say too. So we end our show with seven quick questions. First question. Of all the things you have to understand, what do you wish you really understood? I wish I understood exactly how these vaccines work. We know some of the underlying mechanisms, but that's always the toughest, um, to really know at a very granular level um, how the immune system is that induced by the vaccines is knocking off the pathogen. Because if we, if we can develop those so-called correlates of protection, immunological correlates, we can design better vaccines. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Well, one of the things that I've found is just telling them their facts are wrong is not adequate because, you know, for instance, with all the crazy stuff people say about mRNA vaccines, that they're magnetizing you or they have chips inside or they have, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, the list goes on that it's going to change your genes. You can actually debunk those one by one by one by one, but that doesn't mean they're going to get vaccinated. And so that, which I find really interesting also. So now people's political allegiance or identity is so tied to not getting vaccinated that they'll, the reasons that they give for not, for not taking a vaccine, you can debunk them, but they're still not getting vaccinated. As opposed in the past, you know, you could talk to a parent and explain to them, you know, why what they said is not true. And most of the time the parent would vaccinate their kids. Now you see people so dug in that it, that it, the facts almost don't matter. It's a really interesting perspective on that. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? So I think it's, what do I do with $35 million? <laughs> <laughs> where, 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 where are the 10 houses? And, uh, oh, God. Okay. Okay. Next one. How do you deal with a compulsive talker? Actually, I like to listen to people. You know, I'm, I'm from the Northeast, right? I was born in you know, grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, and went to Yale, and then New York for my MD and PhD and residency in Boston. So all Northeast. One of the fascinating things that that I've learned is it's very different when you move to a different part of the country here in Texas, and um, and and people have different attitudes, and I love it. I love the fact that that I'm learning new things about people and and listening to people and and. Um, and, and even those who are refusing vaccines, when you actually talk to them, they're actually the most extraordinary Americans you can imagine. I, I, I give this analogy. I say, you know, if, if my car had broken down because of a flat tire and you gave me the 
and I said this when I gave grand rounds at Stanford uh, Medical School a few a few weeks ago. I said, if you gave me the choice to have my car with a flat tire in Palo Alto, California, where Stanford is, or very wealthy enclave of California, or in East Texas, in Tyler, Texas, I'd pick Tyler, Texas every time because in Tyler, people would be fighting over the opportunity to help you change your tire, right? So <laughs> ex extraordinary people. And that's what's so heartbreaking is everyone you talk to there has lost a loved one because they refused the COVID vaccine. So, so how do you at the same time convey your love of, of people who um, were victims like that? You know, it's very challenging. Next question. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you've never met. How do you begin a genuine conversation? Um, it's, you know, I'll say another thing about the great other thing about a place like Houston, Texas. Uh, very few of us are actually from Houston, Texas. Everybody's moved here for, for either economic reasons or, in my case, for the Texas Medical Center. So people have a natural curiosity. So it's expected that you're going to say, well, what brought you to Texas and, and you know, what do you do? And people love to do that. And, and, and I do that. And, it's, and you usually wind up having a pretty interesting dinner conversation. Okay, next to last. What gives you confidence? You know, for me, it's, you know, as Martin Luther King said, not that I'm comparing myself to Martin Luther King in any way, but he once said it's, you know, not the words of your enemies, it's the silence of your friends. That's the toughest part. So, you know, too often, you know, when I'm out there getting attacked by the far right or, you know, Steve Bannon publicly calls me a criminal and, and this kind of stuff. Yeah, you expect it, but it's what's always disappointing is when you don't get the backing of esteemed colleagues. And I think what gives me confidence more than anything else is, you know, that kind of recognition from, from colleagues from the National Academies of Medicine, National Academies of Science, from the scientific societies. That, that still matters to me to know, to know that I'm not alone. Last question. What book changed your life? I love biographies and particularly for scientists who have taken that next measure to do something even beyond what they're doing in, uh, in the laboratory. And so, for instance, I have a, a biography of Chaim Weizmann, you know, who, um, you know, was a fantastic organic chemist. He developed fermentation processes for acetone that helped the British win World War One. Um, but then to go that next measure and to become a, a, a states, you know, a statesman to to do something beyond themselves, and or or people like Jonas Salk, and so for me, the, these biographies are very inspirational. Well, you're very inspirational to me. Thank you, Doctor Hotez. Oh, thank thank you, Alan. You're amazing, and uh, as I say, I can't tell you how much I admire everything you're, you've done and you're doing, and just one of these extraordinary individuals. And I'm so thrilled to, to be with you on this podcast. Well, that's way too kind. That's all, it's all true. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. 
And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Dr. Peter Hotez is Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine. He's also the co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development. His 2018 book, Countering the First Wave of Anti-Vaccine Falsehoods, was Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. His new book is The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Kate Cohen. She's written a thoughtful book about the difficulty she had in finally admitting to family and friends that she was an atheist and how difficult conversations like that often turned out to be surprisingly refreshing. Her goal, she says, isn't to convince believers to become unbelievers, but to convince non-believers like her of the value of being honest and forthright about their non-belief. I feel comfortable saying that I'm an atheist. Even though you can't prove there's no God, there's no way to prove a negative, um, God is conveniently invisible. (laughs) I don't need to give that particular imaginary creature any more benefit of my doubt than I give, you know, monsters that may or may not be in the closet of my kid's room, right? Why do we have a much, much higher requirement for this particular imaginary being than we have for other ones that we easily say, no, no, that's not true. It was made up. Kate Cohen, whose book is We of Little Faith, Why I Stopped Pretending to Believe, and Maybe You Should Too, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. When your path to business growth gets rocky, AdRoll makes digital marketing a walk in the park. Work directly with advertising experts at AdRoll to launch cross-channel campaigns that deliver efficient ROI. Sign up at adroll.com slash ROI. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary, and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.